Christians, today we are in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 17. We have been looking at uh, the kings. And we finished up last week by looking at the king, one of the kings of Judah, a man by the name of Asa. And uh, the, the passage uh, brings about the end of his life, the death of this fellow King Asa. Asa was a good king. He stumbled in his closing years. He made some errors and mistakes. He allowed his heart to be hardened. And unfortunately, it marred his testimony, but it didn't remove his relationship with God. He was a man that you might, we might say in the New Testament, he was saved, and yet he stumbled in the latter days of his life. But nonetheless, he was considered a good king, as it says in Second Chronicles 14, that he did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, as we move on, though, into chapter 17, we discover that upon Asa's death, that his son, Jehoshaphat, takes his place as the ruler of Judah. And so we have a couple of slides here that is looking at the transition. Did they come up today? Yeah, they did. And this is sort of looking at the transition here from one king to the next. His son is a man, look at verse 1 of chapter 17, by the name of Jehoshaphat. And it says, Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. Now, admittedly, most of us probably know very little about Jehoshaphat other than that he was jumping. Uh, jumping Jehoshaphat, which I don't even know what that means, um, but it's out there as an expression. So the next four chapters of this book, Second Chronicles, is going to deal with the life of this man. Jehoshaphat was the fourth king in the southern kingdom. And so you had Solomon and then Rehoboam, and then you had Abijah, then you had Asa, and now we come to Jehoshaphat. And the summary verse of this man's life, it says in Second Chronicles 20, it says that, he, that's Jehoshaphat, walked in the way of Asa his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And so like Asa, Jehoshaphat is a good king. We said that in the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, I think it was 19 kings, not one of them is considered a good king. All of them, it says they did evil. In the southern kingdom of the 20 kings that are there, it's about five where it says that they did good. Here you have an instance of a fellow that did good. You have two in a row. Asa, and now Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was a very, very successful king in the nation of Israel, almost rivaling King Solomon, who was the zenith of the nation. Jehoshaphat brought a great many personal reforms as well as national reforms to the kingdom. So like we said about Asa, he was a reformer king. But like Asa, unfortunately, in the later years of his life, Jehoshaphat also makes some mistakes. Mistakes which take a good man's testimony and stain it. And we'll take a look at that as we continue to move through these four chapters. So we'll probably be looking at Jehoshaphat for two, maybe three weeks. But today, we're going to try and make our way through chapter 17 and a little bit of chapter 18. Starting in verse 1. It says, Now Jehoshaphat, his son, Asa's son, reigned in his place, and he strengthened himself against Israel. Now just for a reminder, remember when we say Israel, we're not talking about the Israel that we learned about in the book of Genesis and Exodus and that Moses led the nation of Israel and all that. In in the context of what we're studying, Israel is the northern kingdom. It's those 10 tribes the nation has experienced if you will a civil war, a splitting, and you have those 10 tribes to the north, they are called Israel and the two tribes to the south, they are referred to as Judah. And so Jehoshaphat took his place as the king of Judah, strengthened himself against the king 
of Israel, or the kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel, verse 2, and it says, And he placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah, and he set garrisons in the land of Judah, and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa his father had captured. Now, back in chapter 14 through 16, as we were reading about Asa, we read that Asa had constant warfare with the king of the north, primarily this guy by the name of Baasha. And that led him, you may recall, to rely upon the king further north, the king of Syria, that man by the name of Ben-Hadad. That was a mistake in his life. But nonetheless, it was during the battles uh, with King Baasha of the northern kingdom that he was able to conquer some of the land of the northern kingdom. And I think we have a map here that's going to show that here. You see this area that is circled there. That dark green color is the northern kingdom. That's the kingdom of Israel. The lighter green color is the kingdom of Judah. And that circled area that, that I have there, roughly, that's the area of Ephraim. Remember, there were 12 tribes. One of those tribes was the tribe of Ephraim, and Ephraim was a part of the northern kingdom, the 10 northern tribes there. And so that little area there was conquered by King Asa and essentially made a part, or some of the cities were made a part, of Judah. And that's what's being referenced here when it talks about that he fortified the cities, verse 2, of Judah, and he said garrisons in the lands in the cities of Ephraim that Asa his father had captured. Verse 3, it says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but he sought the God of his father, and he walked in all of his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. And all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. Now, if you look over to chapter 15, my Bible, I don't even have to turn a page. But look over to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, because I want to remind you of the promise that was made to his father Asa. There was a prophet who came to King Asa. His name was Azariah. And it says, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa. And he said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So we have an instance now. Here we are, one king away, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it may be. Asa was king for 41 years, 40-some years away here. And Jehoshaphat is proving that the word of the Lord is true. And he's doing that with the life that he is living. So Jehoshaphat is a man that determined that he was going to walk in the ways of his dad. And, or, as it also says here, of his, the earlier ways of his father. Now, his father that it's referring to there would be his great-great-great-great-grandfather, David. And you remember that of David, it is said that he was a man after God's own heart. David stumbled. David fell. David uh, sinned with Bathsheba, and then he followed up that sin uh, by having uh, her husband murdered. He had the sin of the census. He had some of his mistakes, but David was a man that was after God's own heart, particularly in the early years of his life. And so here, the reference to being that Jehoshaphat walked in the ways of his father, the earlier days of his father. Notice it says that he put away the Baals. Now, there were a number of foreign gods that made their way into Israel. Surrounding nations worshipped all of these other foreign gods in various ways. Two of the more popular ones, if you will, that made their way into Israel were the Asherah, which they worshipped with what was called the Asherah pole, and also the Baals, or Baal, the god Baal. 
And so here the reference is that he put away the Baals. He put away these idols that primarily the northern kingdom was worshiping. As far as the south was concerned, we're not going to worship these false gods. And so as he made his way around and there was one on this street corner and there was one in this person's backyard, he said, no, that's not happening here in our, in our nation, in the southern kingdom. So he put those away. And just as God promised through Azariah that prophet to his father Asa, he was with Jehoshaphat. God was with him. Jehoshaphat was with God. God was with him. And notice it says that God established his kingdom in his hand. Now when we say that God established his kingdom in his hand, that's a way of saying that all rivals ceased being rivals. That he was firmly in place as king. Nobody was rebelling against him. Everyone said, yeah, you're our king. No doubt about it. We're content to have you as our king. And with that sort of security in place, that allows, rather than investing in defending himself from rivals, it allows Jehoshaphat, much like Solomon had a period of peace, and he could take the, the finances and invest it into developing the city or the nation, the growth and the development of the nation. This is what Jehoshaphat is able to do. And it's the reason why we say he was one of the most successful kings in the nation of Israel. Because during his time as king, I think it's something like 25 years, that time was marked by peace. Move on to verse 6. I love this verse. It stood out to me. I highlighted it in my Bible. Maybe that's why it's standing out. Uh, but it says that his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And furthermore, he took the high places and the ashram out of Judah. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, English Standard is what I happen to be reading, it says that his heart was courageous. Those of you that perhaps are reading the King James Version or maybe some other versions, you'll notice there that it says that his heart was lifted up. Now, if you've been around, you know when somebody's heart is lifted up, that's usually a bad thing. Oh no, his heart is lifted up. That's not good. In this instance, it's very, very good. He wants his heart to be lifted up. The, the way that this word could be translated is that his heart was lively and affectionate, almost like swelled. It got excited about something here. And maybe that's why the newer translations have decided to go a completely different direction from lifted up, and they've decided to go the direction of it was courageous. And I appreciate that, though. But it says that his heart was lively and affectionate. It's a term which means that he was passionate to action. You ever been passionate about something? There have been times in my life when I was so passionate about things that I was moved to action. There was a time where I was very passionate for the Philadelphia Phillies. And so I went out and got a jersey. Now you can get a cheap jersey for like $10, but I had to have the real one. And it was like $100, and I think I wear it once a year. And I don't even like to wear it because it's hot and so, all this sort of stuff. But I was so passionate about the team, I had to get the jersey, and I had to go down to the games to watch them. It sort of coincided with when they were good. Uh, who knows? But anyway, I was passionate for the team. There were times in my life where I was passionate about politics, and I was passionate about p particular political candidates. I'm not so passionate these days. But in those days, I was very passionate about it. I got the sign. I got the sticker. I put it on my car. I put it out on my front lawn there. I was passionate. I was moved to action. Jehoshaphat was passionate for the Lord, and he was passionate for the ways of the Lord, and because of that passion, he was moved to action. Now, he takes two uh, sides, if you will, of action. All right? two, if it was an outline, there'd be 15 points underneath it, but we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. These are the categories that we're moving forward in. Notice the first one here. It says in both verses 3 and 6, it says that he removes the high places. 
His first action that he takes here in response to this passion he has for the Lord is that he is going to stop the idolatry that was prevalent within his nation. But I think it's very important to note that not only does he just stop something, but he starts something as well. And I think that's key because who we become is what we're doing. Not just not what we, we don't do that anymore. Oh, I don't do that. I'm a Christian. I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. But what do you do? How do you go forward with this? Or do you just sort of retreat? And we don't do anything. I don't listen to that. I don't watch that. I don't talk like that. I don't drink that. I don't do these things. But what do you do? How do you bring your faith forward? And so here we have this example of Jehoshaphat. He stops something, but he also begins to do something. Look at verse 7. It says, Now in the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hael, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, and Milkiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them the Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Azahel, Shemiramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah. I like that name. And with these Levites, the priests, Elishama and Jehoram, and they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah, and they taught among the people. So one side of the outline, if you will, is he removes the idol worship from the kingdom. But at the same time, he replaces that with something else. And you see here is he replaces it with the teaching of the word of God. The same principle I think we find in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says this to the believers in Ephesus. He says, put off your old self, which uh, belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holy holiness. If you read the book of Colossians, there's a lengthy section in chapter 3 in which he essentially says the same thing, and he uses the same terms, this idea of putting off and putting on. Now, those two terms, put off, put on, it's a term which is commonly used to refer to what you do with your garments or your clothing. And so you work hard all day or whatever, and some of us, we work hard and we wear like suits and ties, and we come home and I just got to get this thing off and put on my pajamas. Others of us, we work all hard and we come home filthy, dirty, and we got to come home and take off these dirty clothes and put on something that's clean so we don't mess up our couches and whatever it may be. But it's a term that refers to uh, putting off an old garment or something like that. And, and the point is this, the point that Paul's making, what is demonstrated in Jehoshaphat's life is this, I'm glad you took off that dirty old shirt, but put something else on, man. You're walking around naked. You've got to replace it with something else here. And Jehoshaphat, he understands this concept. And so not only does he stop doing a certain thing, but instead he begins to do something new. And so many of us that are coming to Christ, we say, you know what? This clubbing scene that you know, I've been kind of involved with and doing, that's just not good for me. I'm pulling out of that. And, I'm, and rather than on a Friday night sitting around your house and doing nothing, soon enough you'll be back clubbing again, I guarantee you. Replace it with something else. Replace it with something better. And so then you find yourself in a small group or you find yourself serving somewhere else. You take something off and you put something else on in its place. Notice the new thing again, found in verse 7 to 9. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials. You have the whole list of them there. And it says, and they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. What does he replace it with? He replaces it with the teaching of the word of God. A little bit later in the scripture, one of the books we're going to study this summer in our study of the minor prophets, there's one of those prophets is a man by the name of Amos. And Amos 
said these words. It's found in chapter 8. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. And it's very interesting. As a famine came on the land there of Israel, and the word of God didn't go forth in that land anymore, the result of it was, you would think it would be all sorts of things, uh, sin or this horrible thing or that horrible thing, but the result of it was aimlessness. There was no purpose anymore amongst the people. There was no sense toward godliness. There was never the question of God, what would you have us to do? And where do you want us to go to serve you? There was aimlessness. There was a famine in the land. And because of that aimlessness, as things came at them, that's what they accepted. Sure, I'll take that. What's that? Oh, that's nice. Oh, yeah, I'll take that too. And I'll do that. And yeah, I'll do that thing as well. Because that's the things that were thrown at them. And because they had no purpose, they could go nowhere forward. They had drifted from the word of God. They weren't reading it. They weren't studying it. They certainly weren't applying it. And so it's no wonder that they found themselves in sin. And so Jehoshaphat determines that he's going to return the southern kingdom to the word of God. And so he sends all sorts of officials forward. He sends these teaching priests out there, and they begin, they begin to declare and explain the word of God. Look at verse 10. You see the result. It says, And the fear of the Lord fell upon the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. That's what happens when the Word of God is proclaimed in our lives by teachers who believe the Word of God. So parents, if you're teaching your kids, if you believe the Word of God and you proclaim that to your kids as such, it has an impact on your kids. If you go to a church and the pastor believes the Word of God and preaches it to be true, the fear of him falls on the people. Now notice, we're not saying preaching about the Word. We're not saying preaching a little bit of the word or some of the word or those, that part of the word which is comfortable and easy when you agree with. We're talking about the entire counsel of God's word. Taking the time to explain its meaning and then making the appropriate application to our lives. And that's why we're in First and Second Chronicles. We're studying the entire counsel of God's word. And, you know, here's the cool thing. Remember we were doing the genealogies and, and this guy gave birth to that guy who gave birth to that guy. The first like 10 chapters and, it was like, and people were like, come on man, please. Can you pick something else here? We're going to plug through it. People got saved here during those weeks. And I thought the studies were born. You know? And yet people got saved during those times here. God's word is powerful. I love it, all of it. And so I'm so glad that we are a body of believers. Now you might say, well duh, yeah, of course. All churches do that. Actually, no. Not all churches teach the Word of God. I, I used to attend some churches that didn't. I didn't know the difference. But when I got around the teaching of the Word and the steady intake of it, I just began to notice God changing me. And as I began to then say, I need a little more of that. And I began to read it for myself uh, in the mornings or whatever it may be. Or attending another small group. And people everywhere I was going, people believed it. And it was going forth. And God just began to change me. And the fear of the Lord came upon me, and I heard some things in the Scripture, and I said, you know what, my life doesn't add up to that. I should probably change that in my life. And God just began to do a work. The fear of the Lord fell upon us. And so we proclaim the full counsel of God, and then we seek to live it out. And the fear of the Lord falls. I think the reason why there is so much, for instance, sexual sin in the Christian church is because the full counsel of God is not presented by people that believe the Word of God. Paul says in the New Testament, he speaks about this urgency to persuade others to come to faith. 
I think the reason why so many within Christianity in the United States do not have an urgency to see people come to a knowledge of the Lord is because the Word of God does not go forth. There's no fear of the Lord. Amos said, and like Amos said, our nation, I think, our Christianity, is at risk for a famine for hearing the Word of the Lord. And there's lots and lots of Bibles that are out there. I I suspect many of us in our homes have five, ten copies of the Bible in our home. Would would that be a fair assessment? I bet you do. In your bathroom, in your kitchen, in your dining room, whatever it may be, by your living room somewhere. And yet how often it goes unopened. Right? There's a famine for hearing the word of the Lord, and yet it sits right in our homes. And so we must be people of the book, as it says. Now it goes on, it says, Jehoshaphat determined he would do what he could. I'm going to do what I can within my sphere of influence. And so as a reformer king, he brought the word of God to the people. And as I said before, the fear of the Lord fell. But here's an interesting thing. Notice the passage. Notice who the fear fell upon. Again, looking at the verse there, it says, And the fear of the Lord fell upon the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah. I think that's great. Here you have the people of Judah beginning to fear the Lord. They're reading the Word. They're studying the Word. They're, now they're understanding it. Someone's teaching it to them. They're applying it to their lives here. And no, no doubt, they're honoring the Lord through this whole process. And just like the prophet said, that if they were with Him, He would be with them, and so on. So they're honoring God in their, in their speech. They're honoring Him in the way that they treat other people. They're honoring Him in their business dealings. They're honoring Him. They're looking to, to walk their lives in integrity. And one after the other, they're trying to apply the Word of God. They're taking steps of faith. God's proving Himself faithful, and He's blessing them. And notice here, the thing that I think is great about all of this is people are watching, and they're observing. We make a huge impact on others without having to say any words at all, just by the life that we live. Now, there's a time to say words, certainly, but just by the lives that we live, as we seek to honor the Lord, as we seek to be with the Lord, and the Lord is faithful to be with us, as it says through that prophecy there, we make an impact on other people. As other people see us building our lives upon our foundation of the relationship with Christ, everything that we do, my decision as to whether my kids are going to play in this particular sports league or not, and the time that it's going to consume of their lives, is based on my relationship with Christ. The job that I'm going to take is based on my relationship with Christ. The things that, the way we're going to spend our time, the places that we're going to go, how we're going to spend our money, everything in our lives goes back to the foundation of, Jesus, what would you have me to do? And as people see us building our lives upon that foundation, they take notice. They take notice of how you're raising your kids and the type of employee you are and the peace that you maintain even when circumstances are perfect and they're impacted. Now, I'm not saying that they're necessarily going to profess the Lord because of your life necessarily, but they observe the Lord. They're watching it. They're impacted by it, and it gets them questioning. And I'm content with that, that God might do a work through my life. Well, it says, Jehoshaphat, the nation of Judah, is strengthened. Let's go on to verse 10. It says, Now some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver for tribute, and the Arabians also brought 7,700 rams and the same number of goats. And Jehoshaphat grew steadily greater. He built in Judah fortresses and store cities. He had large supplies in the cities of Judah. He had soldiers, mighty men of valor in Jerusalem. 
This was the muster of them by fathers' houses. Of Judah, the commanders of thousands, Adna, the commander with 300,000 mighty men of valor, and next to him Jehohanan, the commander with 280,000. Next to him was Amasiah, the son of Zikri, a volunteer for the service of the Lord. He had 200,000 mighty men with 200,000 men armed with bow and shield. And next to him was Jehozabad with 180,000 armed for war. These were in the service of the king besides those whom the king had placed in the fortified cities throughout Judah. Now, I, I counted it at one point. I think it's like 1.4 million, 1.2 million people under his administration and leadership. These are military people. This is amazing. Strengthened the kingdom, as the passage says. Now, let's go on to verse 18, or chapter, excuse me, 18. Because as we move into this chapter, we're going to remind ourselves of what we learned with Asa, is that sometimes good people blow it. And the scripture is very honest. It doesn't paint some picture that all of these people of faith were perfect and that everything they did was right, but it paints an honest picture. Ups and downs and good things and bad things. Our responsibility as we study the scripture is to learn those things that we should be emulating and to look at those things that uh, aren't positive and to say, Lord, keep me from that. And if we can find some clues as to how they ended up down that particular path and got themselves in trouble, then to our own lives we make application and we say, I'm keeping myself from that particular path that he went down. And so here you have a situation where Jehoshaphat's going to make a mistake. Remember, as we said, Asa blew it. He marred his testimony. And ultimately you could say that he was less than God would have had him to become. And that's certainly something none of us want said of our lives. Similarly now we have Jehoshaphat. As we said, he's a good and he's a godly king. But as you're going to see from chapter 18 through, I guess, chapter 20 or so, is he's going to make a series of decisions that begin here in this chapter, which will ultimately mar his testimony. And sadly, the decisions that he does make are going to have significant consequences way down the road. Nothing maybe immediately, but way down the road, very, very significant consequences. We'll get to them as we, as we continue to study through the book. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. And after some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him. And they induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? And he answered, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. Again, looking at verse 1, Jehoshaphat made a marriage alliance with Ahab. Why? Why would you make a marriage alliance with Ahab? Now, I, I imagine some of you may not know anything about Ahab. Something about a whale, Moby Dick, or something like that is all you really know about Ahab here. Ahab in the scripture had nothing to do with a whale. Ahab was a king. He was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he was a contemporary here, as you see, of this particular fellow, Jehoshaphat. When Baasha the king died, and there was that quick succession of three or four other kings that are in there, that's when Ahab comes on the scene. And the scripture tells us this about Ahab. It says that he was the wickedest of all the wicked kings of Israel. Remember, of all the kings of Israel, it said he did that which was uh, none of them, it says, he did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, but rather it says he did evil. And here you have now of Ahab, notice 1 Kings 16, it says, Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 
So they're all evil, but he's the most of the evil. It says in 1 Kings 16, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who came before him. This guy was a bad dude. You remember the story of the, the prophets that came against Elijah, where Ahab and Jezebel, you, you might be familiar. That event occurred just a few years before what we're reading about here. You can read about it in the book of 1 Kings. That's that Ahab, a wicked king who is killing, his wife is, is worse than he is, who seeks to kill off, if you will, all of the true prophets of Israel. And now he comes to Jehoshaphat, and there's this plan to have a marriage alliance and to go into battle together here. It, it makes no sense that Jehoshaphat would join with Ahab. Jehoshaphat is as good, godly, one of the best, maybe even the best of the kings of Judah. And he makes an alliance with the wickedest of the kings of Israel. It's sort of like peanut butter and pickles. They, they just don't go together. Peanut butter and jelly? Love it. I had six the other day. It was delicious. Uh, peanut butter with crackers? That's pretty good, actually. I taught my daughter that recently. And it's good. Saltine crackers and peanut butter, but not with pickles, unless you're pregnant. Uh, then it, it works out well. All right, but not with pickles. Now, Jehoshaphat is one of the godliest of the kings of the southern kingdom, and he voluntarily forms this marriage alliance with the most wicked of kings of the northern kingdom. And again, we ask ourselves, why would you do that? Jehoshaphat was already strong, and he was already secure. We saw that in verse 12 of chapter 17. Jehosh the Lord had already given Jehoshaphat all sorts of victory. The, the fighting that was constant for his dad with the northern kingdom had stopped and so he had all sorts of victory he was amassing great riches and great honor people from surrounding nations were admiring him and all these sorts of things and then we read he goes and he makes alliance with ahab and honestly it just doesn't make sense that he would do it and so we we don't know but we have to ask ourselves what motivated him to do this like what was the thinking that got this godly man to make this terrible decision here and we can't say for certain but i wonder if it was perhaps because of his intentions, that he was trying to accomplish something through this, marriage line, through this marriage alliance that was good, and yet he did a wrong thing in trying to do it. Perhaps he was thinking that if he could marry his son with their daughter, that someday their kid could unify the nation again, and that there would be one ruler who would be the king over uh, these two kingdoms make it one united Israel again. Maybe he thought that good could come from this unholy alliance. Unfortunately, as we're going to see as we dig a little deeper into this study, is because of this decision, and then the next one that is forced to be made because of this one, and then the next one that's forced to be made because of that one, and so on and so on and so on, that he keeps digging himself deeper and deeper and deeper. So much so that eventually the offspring of this marriage alliance, something like the great-great-granddaughter, will actually look to kill off the messianic line, believe it or not. And so it's a terrible decision with terrible consequences that Jehoshaphat himself may never actually see, but it makes its way down the line. I think that we see here a strategy of Satan. And like I said, sometimes we want to learn lessons of what not to do. And so I think this is a strategy that Satan will seek to implement, and it would be wise for us to take notice of. Like the kings that came before him and his contemporaries, just like all of them, Jehoshaphat was tempted 
to worship the foreign idols of his day. But he didn't. He stood up to that temptation. He put away the false gods. He commanded everyone in his kingdom, we're not doing that here. Not during my day. Like Jehoshaphat, he was, uh, he was we see, tempted to the status quo. All right, so we won't worship idols, but we'll just kind of stay in this place right here. But he didn't do that. And instead, he brought the word of God to people, and he pushed people forward in their faith. But the strategy of Satan that I think we see here is patience and persistence. Patience and persistence, or repeated efforts. And so Jehoshaphat was repeatedly standing strong, and so the enemy would come at him this way, and then he would pull away, and he'd come at him that way, and he'd pull back, and he'd come at him that way, and he just kept coming at him from another angle, and another angle, and another angle, until finally he found an entry point where Jehoshaphat had let his guard down. And this shouldn't surprise us as New Testament believers, because Peter said it was going to be this way. And again, we've quoted it before, but 1 Peter 5, 8, where Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so again, we don't know what was going through Jehoshaphat's mind, but perhaps that he embarks on this decision with great intentions. And maybe those great intentions clouded out his sober-minded awareness of the attacks of the enemy. Now, if you're like me, you might hear that verse, and you might say, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. You might hear me say something like, he'll come at us this way, he'll come at us that way, and that way, and that way, until he finally finds an opening. And you might be hearing that, and you might say, well, then I give up. If he's going to get in eventually, why bother fighting the first time? Let him just beat me up the first time, and you know, then he'll go away and beat somebody else up. Well, to you and to me, I say this. Uh, defeat is not certain. Yes, the devil will keep coming at you with patience, and he will come at you with persistence and repeated effort. But the Scripture says that it is not certain. But, and even if we do fail, the Scripture says that it, it need not be permanent either. So let me continue reading First Peter. First Peter 5, 9, it says... And resist him, your adversary, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And we could add, and throughout time. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Resist him. He can be resisted is the point of that. And if you do fall, he can, as it says there, he can restore you. He can strengthen you. He can establish you, which means you won't be moved the next time there. So if it's true that Jehoshaphat was motivated by good intentions, then we see that those intentions went directly against the principle of God's Word. And my wife works as a counselor, which means that she practices on me a lot. And, and I can see her pulling out her craft in my life here, in the life of our kids. And she'll start asking questions because counselors, you know, you're not supposed to tell anybody anything. You just let them discover it, you know, and it's more profitable that particular way. Is this about right? Okay, good. And so she's posing, you know, these questions. And one of the things that she is seeking to do is bring people down that trail. Go, let's, let's rewind this a little. And let's go back down that path and let's get to the place where your thinking was in error. Because at some point in time, the thinking transfer goes from that's correct thinking correct thinking correct and wait a minute now you got wrong thinking and the actions that come as a result of that which are based on that wrong thinking are going to be wrong actions and so if we were to trace back the error in thinking in jehoshaphat 
then I think we would go back to the place of where his intentions were saying something to the effect of, surely God is not pleased by a divided nation. Is that a true statement? Sure. Why would God want there to be a divided nation? You know, he brought these people in. They were to be a testimony. How does a divided kingdom bring glory to God? We were supposed to be a model to the world, and yet this sort of thing. You know, it's an embarrassment, really, that God's people are not unified. Now, God doesn't, I'm not embarrassed. You know, God's like, I'm fine. You know, whatever. But he, he's making somewhat sense here in his thinking here. And so then perhaps he suggests, you know what, God, I could influence the northern kingdom if only I had access to the people of the northern kingdom and I can get that access and so on and so on and so on and so on. And he goes down this particular path here and he ends up with the decision, a marriage alliance. That's how it works for the surrounding nations. That's how it could work for us. And he makes a marriage alliance with this wicked king and his wickeder, is that a word? Wife, Jezebel. And it's clearly outside of the will of God. Now, I know the verse that I'm about to quote comes later in the Scripture. It wasn't around when Jehoshaphat uh, was alive, but the principle of Scripture has been around for, since the beginning. And this is found in the book of 2 Corinthians. It says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, the devil? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Because we are the temple of the living God. You see, I think each of us can rationalize just about any decision we want to make it sound as if it's a good idea. And I think Satan knows that. And I think sometimes Satan will use those good intentions to deceive us. So I care about this person very much. We kind of like each other emotionally. Uh, we're having feelings for one another, but they don't know the Lord. I know the Lord. They don't necessarily know the Lord, but God, I love them. I want to see them come to know you. If I begin dating them, then they'll come to church with me. If we get married, you know, they'll, they'll see how I live my life and the home there, and they'll come to know the Lord as well. And God, that's my desire. Would you please bless it? And so they, we move forward down this particular path, and we find ourselves unequally yoked with a particular unbeliever. Maybe we're in the business world, and there's a fellow that we might be able to get into league with, or a guy or a gal, uh, sort of in concert in this particular business with here, but they don't know Christ. And their intentions and their desires are very, very different. And how they're going to accomplish what it is they're going to accomplish is very different from the motivation that you bring here. But we can rationalize. And Lord, this is going to be a great business opportunity. We're going to make lots of money and I'll give back to the church, Lord. And we could further the work of God and we can rationalize our good intentions and disobey the Scripture. And we see an example of that. We can rationalize away all sorts of convictions believing somehow the greater good is going to be accomplished. And that's why we need to be a people that are careful to heed the word of the Lord. To know the word and to follow the, the, the word. You remember when the devil came and tempted Jesus in the wilderness three times? And he came to him and he tempted him and he tempted him and he tempted him. And each time, Jesus responds to the devil and he says, yes, but it is written. It is written, it is written. His response to, if you will, squelch the temptation that was coming against him was to go back to what the Word of God says. And it's interesting, there's a time where Satan actually brings the Word of God. Yes, but it's also written, he says, twisted around, out of context, and says, Jesus, here, make your decision on this twisted around Bible verse. And Jesus says, no, you don't know what you're talking about. You're taking that verse out of context. 
clear principle of teaching the scripture is to go back to the context and see what comes before. And Jesus deals with the temptation, but he goes back to the word. And so you and I, we must always return back to the scripture. So I got this great intention. See if the scripture lines up with that. And if you have to contradict the word of God to carry out this lofty idea, it's not going to work. You will always set yourself up for trouble. Well, when we come back together again, we're going to look at this alliance, these two men, these two kings, they're going to go into a battle together and fight a particular battle. You'll see Ahab's true heart come out. I'd encourage you to read ahead, chapters 18 and chapter 19. We're going to study that actually in two weeks together. Next week, we're going to take a break from Second Chronicles, and we're going to have a communion service together. Um, so I'd encourage you to prepare your hearts for that as we come together. It should be a great time. Uh, let's go before the Lord today and pray. Father, we thank you. Father, I, uh, I appreciate Jehoshaphat's uh, determination to bring the word of God to the people. Lord, we end up sort of on this heavy note of him finding himself partnered up with Ahab, and yet, Lord, we're reminded of sort of those better days of better judgment. Uh, and Lord, uh, we want to bring that into our lives as well. We want to be a people that are in the word, applying it, studying it, understanding it, living it. And Lord, seeing the effect that that would have on our lives as we are growing in our fear of you, Lord, the impact that that makes on other people's lives. And so, Father, would you cause this week to be a week of great blessing, Lord, that the word of God would be alive in our hearts. Father, that you would take us from that place of maybe complacency, maybe laziness, maybe just life is so incredibly busy because of all the things we bring in. And Lord, that you would cause our hearts to be purposed to seek you in your word to have those times to meet with you. Father, we, we sing earlier, I love your presence. And Lord, we know that that presence can be enjoyed not just on a Sunday morning, but sitting in the back room of our house before the kids get up. Just in your presence. And to hear your voice. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name.